for me, it's about like trying to take a wider view and say, can we examine how these us versus them narratives and, and emotions really bias us and get us to, in the same way we were talking about for two pessimistic framings, it's like, we're, we're too likely to say like, I don't like what happened. I don't just, I don't, I don't trust the other side. Therefore, I'm going to say the election was rigged. Okay, so hello everybody. Welcome to another episode of Chatter. Today I am delighted to be joined by Zachary Elwood, uh, author of Diffusing American Anger and host of podcast where they often discuss political polarization and politics generally. Um, Zach, welcome to the show. Hey Josh, thanks for having me on. Yeah, not a problem, man. So yeah, so um, I had to read through your book um, and lots of very interesting topics. Um, nice hot button things, which is great. Uh, but... I guess the place to start would be polarization generally. So, like, it feels to me, at least, just from my own assessment of things, um, that things continue to get increasingly polarized. But that, I feel, often is very much based on what I see online. And I often wonder, how real is that? Because, for example... I was just down at the the march to rejoin the EU that was in London a couple of days ago. Um, I went down sort of the film some interviews with people on the street and asked them why they were there and expected to get like the, the sort of people that you get on Twitter at these events. And it turned out that everyone was very lovely and very reasonable and um, not in the slightest way the crazy ranting lunatics that you'll find on Twitter. So, like, how real is the polarization in the broad in broad society that that people are seeing online? Mm -hmm. uh, yeah, I mean, it's it's tough to talk about because you know, and you can find people doing all sorts of research trying to really define what polarization means and how big a problem is is it. And you know, for example, you can separate it into the dimension of the actual polarization of beliefs, like what policies we actually want, you can separate it into, you know, how much contempt each side has for the other side. Uh, so, you know, when people talk about the problem of polarization, most people are talking about the large amount of contempt that people have. But, you know, then as you say, there's the nuance of like, how many people actually have that contempt, which is like, you know, part of solving the problem too, is getting people to, to see how, the other side is not this monster they imagine and, you know, these kinds of things and, and showing them that people's, even the, even the people have, who have a lot of animosity, they overestimate the degree to which the other side has animosity for them, you know, the number of people and the degree of animosity. So, you know, all these things are really nuanced as you're drawing attention to, but I think, you know, uh, there is the problem of a larger and larger uh, percentage of people having more and more contempt for, you know, the quote other side, uh, even as we, you know, also recognize the nuance in like the two sides, you know, not being a, a monolith and, and it being simplistic to talk about there even being two sides. But, you know, when you look at like studies of, you know, in America, the, the congressional polarization of like uh, how likely, you know, the representatives are to agree on something, you know, that, that gets worse and worse over the last few decades. And then like, 
surveys of you know how much contempt and animosity uh, average citizens have for the quote other side and such. You can see those getting worse over decades, you know, which is you know the the kind of definition of what the problem is. It's not that we disagree on things; it's it's that we have animosity and contempt for uh, people who disagree with us more and more, and we see even things that we wouldn't have seen as moral, you know, representing moral uh, uh, incorrectness or, or, or badness, we start to see more and more stances on issues kind of wrapped up into this, like, oh, you're a bad person for having this stance or, or voting for this candidate or such. Um, yeah, so that's kind of how I see it as, as, uh, as, the, as defining the problem. But it is, a, uh, it is a really hard thing to talk about because, you know, even talking about, like, I'm doing depolarization work, people will think like, oh, you're trying to shift my stances on things where it's like, no, we're trying to examine like exaggerated, uh, outsized anger and animosity and contempt for the other side. And like, is that misplaced? And it, does that make sense? And does that make things worse? These kinds of things. How much do you think social media is to, to blame for this like animosity that people seem to have towards the other yeah. side? I think it's a great question. I mean, I, it's something I've delved into. One of the early political pieces I wrote was I, I spent a few weeks researching and, and writing about kind of the inherent ways that the internet, uh, I think, leads to uh, more divisive framings. Like, for example, one is like we're all distant from each other and we behave in worse ways when we're distant. We, we use more dehumanizing language. We're more likely to just like say what is ever on our mind where we wouldn't do that in person, these kinds of things. And then you factor in to the, uh, the, there's also the fact, the thing that I examined in my piece was, you know, there's, there's research that shows when you write something down, especially publicly, you're more likely to uh, protect that point of view and less likely to change your mind. So it could be that the, 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 nat the inherent aspect of like us writing things down, which, which is a completely new thing in human history, right? Like that's a very, recent thing, we're all writing things down on social media, and then we feel the need to defend it, we feel the need to be self consistent. And so that that could be an inherent way we that's kind of deranging us. So I personally think based on my research and the people I've had on my podcast, you know, some of which are, are like well known researchers on social media and polarization, and like, some of them would agree with me. And I write about this in my book, it's like, I do think that social media is a is a amplifying force on polarization. You know, you've also got the fact that uh, the internet inherently creates a place that's easy for us to find insults to our group. And, and, and one way polarization grows is, you know, we perceive more and more insults and threats to our group. And, you know, in, the internet creates a, an environment where anybody can highlight anything else anybody has said and say, hey, look at what they're saying about you. You should be threatened. You should be angry. Uh, so it just creates a, a breeding ground and, and for, for insult and, and grievance. Uh, and, and, and it lets us always remember these things, whereas like without the Internet, we might be more likely to forget some of these offenses. So all of these offenses are at a moment's reach. We can dredge, dredge them up and say, hey, look, remember all these horrible things that they they did to you, you know. So I think, uh, yeah, I do see it as an, an amplifying force. Yeah, that's interesting that the the previous crimes or the, the things you said 15 years ago can be right there that yeah it's just like yeah you know maybe maybe this person seems really reasonable now but look look at what he said this one time like 20 years ago or you know look at this one article about this thing that i disagree with well yeah imagine in rwanda like you know where imagine what they went through with more social media you'd be like 
hey, these people killed your family, you know, like you never forget that way. Well, you'll always keep bringing it up over and over. Right. And it's like, how can you how can you heal when you keep, have, you know, you keep bringing up the grievances and amplifying the grievances? You know? Yeah, I hadn't actually thought of that as, as something that that should be considered in this discussion. Well, yeah. That's, uh, Forgiveness becomes yeah. harder, basically. Yeah, yeah, a hundred percent. And honestly, like I'm a hun- like I'm a hundred percent like a been a victim of this of this kind of thinking because because I see it all the time. Like um, you know, things that I'd forgotten. My cat's meowing. Well, it's not even my cat, but the cat. Um, <laughs> I don't know if it's coming. I can hear it on the mic. <laughs> I can't. I can't hear it. For okay, me. that's all right then. I'll let him in. Maybe he'll come in, in a minute. <laughs> anyway, um, like I've definitely been a victim to that. Like, like literally today, because there was. Um, I don't know if you're familiar with this story. Our health secretary throughout um, the first sort of year, year and a half of the pandemic was this guy called Matt Hancock. Okay, and then um, whilst he was in government laying out all the the rules and restrictions that we were supposed to be following um he was having an affair in the office whilst like he was on tv like saying you know you shouldn't meet new sexual partners like don't go out dating don't do anything whilst he's having an affair in the office right (laughs) with some like outside consultant um and then um then he you know stood down in disgrace um obviously or well not obviously these days but thankfully and then he went on um whilst still a sitting mp so whilst he was still like the equivalent would be like so you were you'd been like i don't know you'd been in the the senate leadership or the house leadership and then you'd stood down in disgrace but you were still a member of congress and then he went on i'm a celebrity get me out of here while still representing the the constituents that had elected him, he was still getting paid as an MP, and he was. And anyway, every single time I talk mm-hmm. about it, I can feel the temperature of my blood rising. Mm-hmm. And I saw an interview with him today, and I'd forgotten about it. And I was just, I well, not forgotten, but you know what I mean. It sort of like swung. It was like only in the back of my mind. It wasn't like the forefront. I remember. I was like, oh, you know, these mm-hmm. crooks. Like, <laughs> I was so angry yeah. again because of it. <laughs> it's yeah, amazing how that. Um, and and I, I'm in, reading this interesting book that actually sort of brings up a lot of principles. Um, it's called uh, the Gutenberg Parenthesis. I'm interviewing this guy Jeff Jarvis mm. in in a couple of weeks, um, and he talks about how the complaint of of people in print was that like we some sometimes that you know things were all going to be codified now and things would never be forgotten because they were written down. And it's funny to see like this is like the the greater evolution of it. Is now is not only on hand to us. It's like three, three keystrokes away. You search it and you'll find the thing that you want that, to, to make you angry. Yeah, that that is, I mean, to your, the, the, the story you were talking about, I mean, I think when it comes to how conflicts grow and, and polarization, us versus them polarization grows, you know, we, people often focus on like misinformation or distorted information, whereas like, to you know a big factor is actually real things and how we filter for the, those things right like for example you know you not to say that you're unfairly uh filtering things but like if you were filtering for the things that m- most likely bothered you and that added to your us versus them anger you're gonna pick those out and just like somebody on the other side will have their things about like people they dislike politicians leaders they dislike they'll be like look at these things that they're doing that are so horrible and we're going to focus on those things 
you know, mostly. And, and I think that's an important point because we focus so much on like untrue things and how, you know, there's this, uh, I think too much focus on like misinformation. Whereas I think a lot of it is just like how we filter for the world, which just comes down to like our, our biases. And, and, and it's even not to say that we're not right because we can be, you know, fairly uh, rationally made upset by things, right? Like you, you being uh, made upset by, you know, hypocrisy that you perceive uh, by people. But it's like, it's how we add all those things together and like use them to kind of like theoretically justify our contempt for the, you know, the quote other side and like seeing seeing all the bad things on the other side and 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 not seeing how, you know, our group, people on our on our side may be adding to that in similar ways to the uh, to the conflict, you know, so I think that's what uh, that's what I try to bring attention to is is trying to get people, you know, even if they think the other side is worse to examine the dynamics and say, Hey, is there something I can do to like lessen the contempt basically? Yeah. Mm -hmm. So, Oh, Max has joined us. Um, oh yeah. Is that, you <laughs> said that wasn't, you said that wasn't your cat? No, it's my flatmate's cat. Ah, oh, I gotcha. Yeah. yeah. Uh, Bring him into the conversation. Yeah. I mean, he's, uh, normally only vocal about, about sort of food issues, which makes me think he's a humanitarian. Um, <laughs> Uh, so the thing that really, I think, broke people's brain, especially in America, in terms of polarization, was the candidacy of, of Donald Trump. And I think he and Joe Biden actually right now exemplify the perfect, uh, like, are a, they're a perfect case study in the exact thing that you've been, you were talking about here. It's just like, they've both got examples of egregious corruption, which have been ignored by one side or the other based on who they find to be the more appealing candidate. But like, what do you think about, uh, it was about Trump that caused such, he was so, so divisive in terms of like people's attitude towards him or in support of him. Yeah. I have a section in the book, not surprisingly uh, on Trump himself and our perceptions of him and, you know, our kind of divergent, perceptions. And uh, I actually just made an excerpt of this available on my site because it kept coming up. I kept seeing, you know, even to this day, some liberal people will say, how could uh, how could Trump voters, you know, uh, support Trump when Trump did X thing, you know, like called Mexican rapists or whatever. And, and so I delve into the nuance of that to show there can be very different views of all of those anecdotes that are dredged up, right? It's like, for example, I mean, like I have an example in my book where, you know, a, a quote from a Mexican American Trump's Trump voter who says, like, clearly Trump was not talking about all Mexicans. He was just talking about criminal, a criminal element getting across the border. You know, so this is just to say some of the, the ways that we filter uh, for our, you know, things that match our us versus them animosity can, you know, add, can be very biased, can add to the conflict. You know, for example, one of the things I I try to draw attention to for liberals, like even if you very much dislike Trump, because I find Trump a, a bad and divisive person. He's a he just he likes to divide people, and I don't like to divide people. So even if you think that about Trump, you can examine how your biased and overreaction overreactions, uh, hysterical uh, overreactions, and worst case framings about him actually help him because you're you're basically creating the anger. Uh, you're creating the us versus the anger that you that you say you do do not like, and I'm tr and I try to make people see 
how there were a lot of like very bad, there was a lot of bad reporting, you know, Glenn Greenwald drew attention to a lot of bad Trump Russia reporting, which was a very good examination. And, you know, I, I think liberals, I, I try to help people see the, the contributions of people in their own group, right? So it's like, can you acknowledge that there was a lot of bad, unreasonable, uh, irresponsible coverage and framings of Trump, even if you still very much dislike Trump? Like, I feel like the nature of polarization is like, everybody wants to be like, you're either, you know, with us or against us, but it's like, you can have nuanced views and examine how these things, you know, amplify our divides and make things worse, no matter what your beliefs are, right? It's like, I think that's the thing. Because I mean, I, I talked to Trump voters and, you know, some of them are like, yeah, I think Trump has like thrown gasoline on the fire, even though I'm a supporter of his, right? There's nuanced views even on, on across the board. So I think it's, you know, if we care about reducing the contempt we have for each other, we should be willing to like aim for the nuance and aim for how our divides grow, examine the, the the roots of our divides, things like this. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, Trump, Trump was just obviously, I personally think he's hilarious, but shouldn't be president. Yeah. And I think that's, a, that, that's, I think that's what a lot of people, you know, yeah, it's, it, there's a lot of nuanced views. I mean, I think that's the thing. It's like, even for people that will vote for him, they'd be like, I don't like this, this and this, but I, I'm not willing to listen to what, you know, the liberal leading media and politicians say about him because they've been very unfair to him in the past. So it's like, I, I think that's, you know, what I've tried to get across to a liberal audience is like, hey, there's there's some rational reasons why people don't listen to the, you know, liberal leading media or don't trust them. And if we're going to get better as a society, we need to examine those things and acknowledge that there there can be rational and understandable reasons for, you know, why people uh do the things they do or even if we very much disagree with them right like to what extent do you think the media are are responsible for some of the polarization yeah i think it's a big it's a big impact i mean you've probably uh heard of matt taby's uh you know book about what was it uh hate incorporated yeah. is that yeah hate inc yeah uh i mean he you know he, he i think he does a good examination of some of the dynamics i mean the thing i try to uh, thing I try to do in, in my work too is like, even if, even if we think the media, you know, cause I think there's a lot of like, kind of like paranoid thinking about like what the media is doing, where to me, it's like an understandable, understandable phenomenon because, you know, Matt Taby talks about this. It's like when Trump came to power, he was such a polarizing presence. It, it resulted in a lot of journalists kind of like overreacting in, in various ways. And it wasn't due to any like big plot. It was just like, Many people were understandably, you know, kind of uh, overreacted to him and were scared of him. And like, I'm worried about him. Uh, but it, it all, you know, it resulted in, in a lot of bad journalism, basically. And in the same way, it resulted in a lot of people saying a lot of irresponsible things, like saying, you know, Trump wasn't a legitimate president, president, which I talk about in my book. But it, all these things are kind of like fundamental aspects of conflict, right? It's like the, these things are not due to some you know, uh, ma malicious plot. Whereas I think people are a little bit too quick to reach for that on both sides. Like liberals will be like, there's a big plot going on by the conservatives and conservatives will say there's some big plot going on by the liberals. But, you know, I think what we need to realize is like all of these things that people are doing are kind of like human responses to conflict, right? It's like we tend to like filter too much for things that we view as grievances and offenses and we focus too much on them. And that leads us to overreact in various ways. And, you know, institutions and, and journalists can be 
you know, can be subject to the same human forces. It's not like they're, could be immune from these, these human forces. Right. So I try to get it back to, you know, and I interviewed uh, somebody who, who wrote a whole book on that. And she, her name of her book was media is us. And it was about how, like, we often talk about the media as being some separate thing. And it's like, no, it's just a bunch of humans. Right. It's like that all these things that we criticize in the media are things we do in our own minds. They're just like on a, on a broader scale, like right? they're, they're, they're having to do with media. But uh, so I try to, you know, I, I think it's, I think it's also anger reducing to say, Hey, we can criticize these people for, for doing things that we think are wrong while also being like, Hey, uh, they all, they are so, also are just humans. And if we try to appeal to that aspect of them and say, Hey, you should do a better job, you know, because of these criticisms we have, you know, I think we're more likely to, to see people, uh, you know, uh, self-examine more across the board, whether in like academia or, or journalism or whatever. It seems like you're, you're making quite a, quite a, quite a big case for like personal responsibility in dealing with the polar polarized society. Yeah, I think that's fair. I mean, one of the arguments I make in my book is, is that we all need to be more aware. I, I think if we're going to grow, as a culture and, and kind of be healthier as a culture. I think it takes more people being aware of how they w contribute to our divides. And I think it, part of that is like even just educating people about the nature of conflict, because I feel like that's, that's kind of what motivates my work is a frustration with journalists and politicians who, you know, the, the things that we're dealing with are just like things that many other countries have dealt with, you know, most, mo even most countries now in the world, just with different issues sometimes, you know, but, but the nature of conflict is remarkably consistent no matter what issues are being dealt with. You know, it's some of these fundamental forces. And I think if we talked about that more, like if you had more politicians talking about, hey, we're dealing with a very hard thing now that has affected many other countries. And I actually wrote a script, a, a, a speech I would like to see, you know, a, an imaginary speech I would love to see Biden or somebody make that would that was kind of like uh, addressing these things head on and saying, Hey, look, you know, we're dealing with hard things. A lot of people hate me. You know, a lot of people are angry, et cetera, et cetera. And I kind of address these things head on. Uh, I'm just frustrated that more politicians and more journalists don't, you know, and more pundits don't talk about those things. But the nature of conflict is that few people want to talk about the nature of conflict because they even talking about conflict from a high level is perceived as like offending your group, right? Because it's it's implying that the fault is not with the other side. The fault is like this human group dynamic thing. And that that can even be perceived as like offending one's own group. So that's the, it, the interesting thing is like conflict fundamentally creates an environment where one can't, you know, many people are not incentivized or they're scared of talking about the nature of conflict, which, you know, is part of the problem. I think we, we can't get above the problem, right? Yeah, and I think I think a lot of the time, what I think both I think both sides are are very guilty of what you said of being almost offended by opinions that counter what they want to hear from people that they support, whether that's politicians or journalists or just you know like social media personalities, YouTubers, you know, na you you name it. And and I think the right has this idea that the left are so much more easily offended, but say, say a, a right wing. Oh, I'm trying to think of a good example. 
Well, the, the oversensitivity to criticisms of Trump, I think, is a good example. It's like Trump is a, you know, shouldn't Trump as a leader be able to be criticized? But for some people, you know, it's there's so much emotion wrapped up to, into it, like even a even a, a, a very objective or, or even well-meaning criticism can be met with like you're you're an enemy now by by saying that, you know. Uh, yeah. Yeah. You know, you just want the communists to win. Like, right. You are, you're either with us or against us. You need to get fully on board. Are they, you know, which is, you know, like you said, which is, uh, you know, what, what both, what both groups do in a conflict, even if we may think, you know, we all have our thoughts about which groups are, are worse in that regard. But I think seeing, seeing that aspect of like how conflict naturally makes many of us be like, you're either with us or against us. Right. And then sort of on the other side of that, I think a lot of like, a lot of like, people with a platform underestimate the ability of an audience to be nuanced. So like they'll, they'll sort of have an opinion that maybe is counter to what the majority of their audience would think. Right. And I think people are, are often happy to, to hear a different opinion expressed as long as it's like thought out and well argued and like reasonable, you know, as it, and that people can get caught up in, they see some loud, angry voices on Twitter and think that the entire group of their audience is attacking them. And then they sort of become more defensive and, and sort of more conservative in what they're willing to say, you know? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. No, totally. I think that's right. And it, get, it kind of gets back to your initial question of like, we can, we can have an exaggerated view of how many people are actually, you know, angry at us or, you know, it's like in social media, especially, you know, comments we get can give an outsized, exaggerated vision of like how many people are angry at us. Like it doesn't take many angry voices to really shut people down, right? We've seen that a lot of times. And I think, uh, you know, when I wrap up my book at the end, I, I talk about, you know, if we care about uh, reducing contempt, reducing us versus them uh, polarization, more of us need to be a little bit braver and recognize that just because you're getting angry voices, you know, at, at you doesn't mean that those voices doesn't mean you should bow to those voices because that's how polarization gets worse. Right. It's like more people kind of shutting down uh, their attempt at nuance or their attempts at like pushing back on divisive uh, framings to, to get better. We need more people kind of saying, no, I don't think these people on my side are correct. They're being, you know, uh, a bit extreme, but, you know, for various reasons, understandable reasons, few people are willing to do that. They either fear losing their influence. So they shut down and, and go with the flow or they're genuinely afraid of, you know, the exhausting nature of, you know, arguing with people online. But I think to your point, it's like, I, I do think if more people need to recognize that the bulk of people do want, you know, are capable of more nuance and do think that there are extreme divisive ideas on both sides, you know, and I think uh, the, the more people speak, try to speak to that audience, it's it's not only, you know, it's not only depolarizing or, or, or anger reducing, I think it's also just more persuasive when we like aim our arguments at like the people more in the middle, you know, but so, so many people want to focus on like the extremes and be like, look at what these people are doing. And it's like, maybe if we just talked more to the people, the bulk of people, I feel, who are you know a bit more nuanced in their thinking and and just less angry in general we we'd see more you know we'd see more coming together because we'd be speaking more to this 
this bulk of people and, and persuading, you know, even, even for political uh, activist kind of purpose, purposes, I think you're just like persuading more people. It's just a more effective thing. So I see the, I see the anger reduction as kind of like aligned with actual political effectiveness. Cause I see extreme divides as being kind of like lose, lose for everybody. It just becomes this like seesaw where, you know, where eventually things get out of control even and become violent or, or unstable but even before that, you've just got this like seesaw effect where like somebody's taking power and then they take it back and make changes or then then the next group comes in and does something different. It just be, it becomes this unstable, you know, lose lose scenario for everyone. So I think, uh, you know, even for politically passionate people, I think like taking these conflict resolution approaches is just like the way you actually convince people and make make the case for your for your activism or your goals or whatever. Like one, so one of the things I wanted to ask you about actually is so, um, so I'm going to, I'm going to use UK based examples just because that's the thing that I sort of witness more than, than the U S but like it, it, the, the general thing applies broadly. Like you could take this and like put it onto like a lot of American examples. I, th I think you'll get my point. It's like, so, <laughs> um, recently, um about six months ago a year ago i don't know how exactly how long so the uk lot like um the uk had a new news channel called gb news right which is basically um i think they're aiming to try and be the fox for the uk almost right mm. um they have had some good discussions on there a lot of like varied opinions and they've talked about some stuff that like wouldn't get discussed on other mainstream channels like on both sides of the aisle and just like addressing issues that sort of don't get discussed so it's, it's become it's more of like it's almost more of like a talk show news channel which is pretty much the fox sort of but also sort of the cnn model in a lot of ways and a lot of these news news channels seem to go that way where it's like an opinion piece mm -hmm. with like discussion about it mm -hmm. um and i saw so many people sort of screeching about it and being like oh they'll fail it'll be awful they'll they'll die you know it's not gonna last there was a a campaign to get advertisers to pull the ads from them and like to try and you know ruin them financially um and that didn't work um and now sort of i think last week it was this the 19th of september they outperformed the BBC and Sky News, who are two like other large news channels, in terms of average viewership across the day, they were better than. And the, mm. the only reactions I saw from anyone who would have considered themselves to be, you know, like, oh, the BBC are great, this is the mainstream, this is the norm, the accepted, and they just screeched about how, you know, how could people do this? You know, what on earth is going on? You know, the, well, it's all the racists watching, you know, it's all the misogynists and the awful people. And 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 this happens in so many issues, left and right. And it's not just the left that, that scream these sorts of things about about things they don't believe. But um, they, they seem to be very loud generally about things. But because I think they occupied the mainstream of like, news and, and and media in a lot of, in a lot of places and none of them ever go hmm why are they getting the views and we are not they never ever sort of like self-reflect and look internally and go what it what is it about that channel that is meaning people are tuning in more than ours they just like write them off as awful people 
So, like, why do you think it is that that happens? That there's never a self-reflection about why people are are tuning into something different or why people are supporting something different? Yeah, I mean, I think it, you know, it gets to that. Um, I think there's a few things there. I mean, one of, one of the things I write about in my book, you know, is the kind of the asymmetry between the groups. You know, for example, you you mentioned a part of that is is that you know the uh, liberal leaning people, li- liberal leaning beliefs, and people dominate cultural institutions um, in, in academia or news or uh, you know entertainment. And I think the um, so there's this real sense, understandable sense that. Uh, conservatives have that they're the underdogs fighting, you know, this, this huge institution, you know, this, this, uh, empire. So I think that that kind of helps to explain, uh, some of the more belligerent approaches on, you know, for why example, uh, you know, even conservatives would allow many conservatives would acknowledge, like there's not a direct, uh, correlation or equivalent of like somebody like Trump on, on, on the left, but they would say that's because Trump is fighting a, powerful ingrained institution of, you know, and that's so we need somebody that's willing to like be aggressive, right? That's what they would say. So I think examining the, the, the kind of like uneven power dynamics can help us understand, you know, why, exa- for example, conservatives in America or, or Britain feel the need, like we need our, we need our own news station because we aren't getting our ideas out there. And that's, that's why we're frustrated. That's why we're angry, right? Uh, we don't have to, you know, liberals don't have to agree with that, but seeing that's why people feel that way, right? Like it, it can start to make more sense. Um, that's how I see is like kind of like a fundamental dynamic thing. Uh, but then, you know, to your question of why do people reach for like the, the least charitable or, or most pessimistic uh, views of what motivates, you know, why, why is this channel successful? Uh, I mean, I think it gets back to, the very, the very pessimistic views we have, you know, we have these very distorted opinions of what drives the other side's beliefs. So, you know, regardless of if we're right or wrong about how their channel does, you know, if, if they succeed, then it must just because, you know, it must be because there's even more horrible people than we imagined, right? It's like, it can't be because, you know, we don't want it, we, we have an inclination to not examine the reasons why, they believe what they do or why people are watching that content. And there is a, uh, you know, one thing it reminds me of, I had this conversation with a, uh, you know, a liberal person and I, I said something like, well, did you know, you know, uh, X number of a significant number of Obama voters, you know, later voted for Trump. There's a def- decent overlap. And, you know, this, this kind of like, I was making the case for why our perceptions are, are often, very, very distorted. And there's a lot more nuance there than we thought. So I was, I was talking about the significant number of, you know, racial minority Trump voters and, you know, the past Obama voters who voted for Trump. And, you know, one thing they said, they were like, oh, that's interesting. I, I didn't know that. that. That is surprising. But that just goes to show you how mis- misogynistic Trump voters are that they wouldn't vote for Hillary Clinton. <laughs> so it's like, they, they, you know, but I think it, it shows how we can take, we take our very pessimistic views of the other side and we just if we learn something that contradicts it, we'll just immediately pivot to something else that corresponds with our pessimistic views, right? So it's like we're able to correct a little bit, but we still just reach for another super pessimistic view of why what motivates them, right? So it's like, oh, maybe they weren't as racist as I thought, but they must hate women 
they they almost hate women even if they're racial minorities right uh so i think it just helps explain the way that we reach for these very distorted you know least generous views whereas and, and part of that is like many of us just don't interact with people who are politically different from us like if if some of these people had more friends on the other side uh on, on the left and right for the most angry people they would start to see the more generous uh, understandable reasons for why they believe what they believe but because we're often so like segregated in our own worlds these days we just have this like very you know stereotypical simplistic view of like how horrible these people are you know yeah i mean that that's it just reminds me of like, like there's a there's a, a guy i um i'm quite a big fan of his name is um adam coleman or adam b coleman oh yeah um you you know some of his work yeah uh, yeah i think i follow him on twitter yeah 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 he's a really lovely guy i've had him on the show quite a few times and then he came to london and we had him in person which was really fun um and he he sort of points out sometimes when when people see him expressing like what would be considered racist opinions if um if it was like said by a white commentator then it's the the response is never like hmm maybe maybe it's not racism the response is always like well that's how deep the white supremacy goes and it's like come on man yeah that's a good that, that is a good example it's reaching for the yeah the most pessimistic interpretation even when you learn something you know and I, I had this with my book where i showed it to you know my a friend read diffusing american anger and 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 in, in that book i highlight you know some black conservative points of view and i and i do that for the same reason uh some some conservatives highlight you know racial minority people and beliefs on their side and and in their in their mind it's to show that there can be nuance there and, and to try to speak the language of, of liberals because you know uh liberals often say you know we we care what uh we want to hear the perspectives of uh racial minorities black people uh and so conservatives sometimes are trying to speak that language and say look can you see how there can be nuance and you know uh a black person can have very different views on this topic but you know the the, mo the most pessimistic interpretation of that when when conservatives attempt that you know liberals will say oh you're just using a token you know person who believes this or you're you're trying to manipulate us by bringing this person forward as a representation but it's like that's like the least generous interpretation another interpretation is like they're trying to show you that there can be nuance you know that that's a more generous interpretation than saying you know implying that they're doing it for like manipulative reasons or you know using a token minority it's like there's all these ways that we filter for the the least charitable interpretation of people's uh behaviors and you know my friend did that for my book a bit he was like well why would you you know use these point these people's points of view it's like a token uh thing and i'm like no I'm, I'm i'm trying to show you that you know if you can understand how a a black person for example was able to vote for trump then maybe you'd be a little bit more charitable to the white people that voted for Trump and see that it's not just, you know, about racism or it's not just about the, the immediate things that may, may uh, come to mind for us or, or, you know, so I, I think it's, uh, yeah, getting back to your, your point, it's like, we really are, many of us are really prone to, we're going to take the worst possible interpretation of, of what you said or did and, and, and spin it through that. Yeah. Yeah, I think you'd, you'd probably find, um, I also, like last week I had in the podcast this guy, Dr. Rakib Asan, um, who wrote a book mm. called What the Left Gets Wrong About Ethnic Minorities. 
Um, and in terms of the, the Brexit vote, he was pointing out that um, there was a lot of um, sort of majority, minority areas that voted for Brexit. And that a lot of them um, in sort of uh, Islamic or Hindu communities are like very socially conservative in a lot of mm-hmm. their views that, that they're maybe not even even though they have immigrated to the uh, emigrated to to Britain, that they're not big fans of like high levels of immigration, or um, they value the family very highly, or um, you know they 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 can be quite patriotic. In fact, one of the stats that he, he blew me away with was um, that um, if you just take a split of Britain down the middle um, in terms of like white versus non-white in terms of demographic obviously it's quite simplistic but like just for the purposes of illustration he was like look the the percentage of, of people who are white um consider uh Brit- their british identity to something for something to be proud of is 63 percent and amongst non-white people it's 68 percent so that he like he was really throwing like spanners in the works of this and i i find it fascinating to to read his book and, and talk to him about because it really like sort of addresses a lot of the the misconceptions that people have about about different sort of groups of people and and stereotypes that like mm-hmm. we all build up in our head like i was like blown away from it and i mm-hmm. you know try to avoid being like like jumping to conclusions about what people are are gonna think um mm-hmm. so the 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 last thing that I kind of wanted to get into was the 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 part of the book that I find most interesting, um, and and I think um, you'll have a lot of good things to say about this is the uh, denying elections from left and right, or um, basically denying the legitimacy of elections from from the left and from the right. Um, mm-hmm. So obviously, um, the 2016 through 2020 saw the Trump Russia. Um, investigations with um, Robert Mueller, who was the guy who prosecuted, uh, who did the Enron case, as far as I'm aware, and a crack team of lawyers. And after several years, they find basically like very little evidence that there was anything there. And after the left spending a long time saying that Trump was not a legitimate president, um, they then, in 2020, when the election rolled around and some conservatives or well a lot of conservatives had questions about whether it was a legitimate election um called them election deniers and said that they were you know destroying the fabric of the country um and a lot of people on left and right depending on where depending on the election year and who won have have argued about the integrity of U.S. elections, specifically relating to voting machines and like how uh, how vulnerable they are. Like there's mm-hmm. hackathons where people like you know yeah they prove they can crack into it in a matter of minutes. Um, they're running on the tech that they upgraded after the Bush Gore um, like debacle in 2000, and they haven't like done any upgrades since. And I looked at the 2021 and I'm like, well, I don't know what happened, right? Some weird stuff, but I don't know. Right, like I, do you know what I'd love? I'd love a big, big investigation, and then after that, you spend as much money as you possibly can to ensure that there is no questions about the next election, none, and and yet nothing like that happened. And I'm sure people like had the same queries. I don't know specifically, but in 2016, in 2000, I mean, you can go. I'm sure there's loads and loads of examples and. Why do you think this has occurred and why do you think people are so blinded by their side in terms of like questioning elections? 
Yeah, I um, I think that was one of the most important sections in the book and the hardest one to write because, um, I mean, I really did want to make a case of whether your whatever whatever your political beliefs are, examining how you know your us versus them animosity can can you know bias you, and to examine. I mean, I think it's important to examine that making a claim that an election was illegitimate is a very serious claim, like theoretically a country destroying claim. And, you know, and I think not enough people take that seriously because I've, you know, you, you just see people willing to confidently say the election an election was rigged uh, with very little evidence. And I've talked to people, you know, I've talked to conservatives because I was curious to research that on my own. And I, you know, I've seen people, say things like, oh, I'm, I'm cert certain it was rigged. And I was like, well, what really, you know, what's the main evidence you would point to? And it just seemed really lacking. And I'm like, you see why, you know, just as you would not like liberals to do these things, maybe it's bad to confidently say that you're certain an election was rigged when you don't really seem to be able to point too much that you're confident of it. But I think, you know, I try to make the case and it, and it gets me grief, you know, from, for, for all this stuff, it, it gets me grief and criticisms from both sides, because what I'm trying to say is examine the underlying reasons for how conflict naturally makes us distrust elections, you know, and I spent a good amount of time on the, uh, on the liberal side, you know, uh, calling the 2016 election illegitimate because, and, and I examined my reasons for why I think that is such a bad and wrong claim and dangerous claim, because I think I do that for a few reasons. Uh, you know, I, th I think both sides need to examine the the uh, the unreasonable aspects of what they're doing there. And I, I talk to a lot of liberals who kind of just don't even see the equivalence. They're like, "Well, you know, there was, you know, Russia tried to, uh, you know, tr tried to uh, manipulate the election." And I'm like, "Well, you know, a there's studies that show that it was like a drop in the bucket. So like even." It's not even clear that the, I, I don't believe, and many other people do not believe that they actually succeeded in, in changing it. But let's let's even suppose that they did. Like, let's even say, you know, even worst case scenario, calling an election illegitimate because a, a, a an enemy of the United States attempted to uh, manipulate it is just like a, a fundamentally losing, like game theory op bad thing to do because it basically rewards anybody for trying to manipulate your election. So, and I actually think that the reason Russia did what they did is just to create more distrust in elections, right? It's like they did, you would have to actually do so much more to actually feel like you've actually, you know, uh, uh, changed an election. But I think that the main thing that they got out of it was like many people calling an election illegitimate, like that is a destabilizing force much more than like, thinking you could actually shift an election, right? So I, I think, you know, if you're going to say like, hey, some foreign groups are spreading information we think is wrong, we're going to, that's that's a reason to call an election illegitimate. Like there, there's all sorts of misinformation and bad information all over the place. Like we had domestic people making bad information. We had, you know, you could make the argument that, that a lot of the mainstream coverage is, is wrong. You know, and that's what the conservatives see. You can make an argument that like these Macedonian people that were motivated by financial incentives were producing a lot of fake news to get clicks and get income. Like there's all sorts of ways we could say our election was, was tainted by bad information. Like it's always been that way. Go back 
the history of the United States or any country, it's full of stuff that we could say is bad information. If you're going to use that to call an ele election illegitimate, like you'll never be able to call another election legitimate because you'll be like, hey, look at this bad information and how it could have shifted the election. It's just like a fundamentally losing proposition to, to take that stance, right? So I think, uh, and, and that, that kind of overlaps with the uh, some of the conservative, you know, Trump voter views because it's like they would say like, well, the media did this and this and this, and that's why I'm going to call the election illegitimate. It's like the, the media, like the media is always doing stuff that people will disagree with. Like they're, you know, they're doing bad journalism or they're doing, you know, uh, the social media platforms are doing something we don't agree with them. You know, if you could reverse the tables and imagine a conservative dominant uh, society doing some similar things and some liberals using that to say, oh, the election was illegitimate because I disagreed with what the media and, you know, was doing in this regard. So I think, you know, for me, it's about like trying to take a wider view and say, can we examine how these us versus them narratives and, and emotions really bias us and get us to in the same way we were talking about for two pessimistic framings, it's like. We're, we're too likely to say like, I don't like what happened. I don't just, I don't, I don't trust the other side. Therefore I'm going to say the election was rigged or, you know, even, even taking a, the stance of like, Hey, the election, something could have happened with it is a more mature stance than saying, I am confident the election was illegitimate. Right. There's a, there's a world of difference there. Uh, but I think, you know, our, our emotions make us more likely to reach for these like very certain framings like, I, I'm certain this is what happened because X, Y, Z. Uh, but I don't know if that, that helps illuminate it, illuminate it. But that, that's, I just think, you know, getting back to that, it's good to examine the, the roots of our conflict and good to bring a little skepticism to our us versus them narratives. Yeah, no, I couldn't agree more. Like, and, and I, I tried to say this to people at the time, but like, I was like, look, right, um, after the, the 2020 election, it was like, look, like 30, 40% of, of the country, of, of American citizens, believe that there's something screwy with that election. Like, you, if you want the country to, like, not be horrendously divided forever, you, you need to have an investigation. You need well, you to, know, like, or, you me, need to do well, something. Me, yeah. Well, yeah, sure. I mean, I, I can see the argument. Like, I, I do believe in, 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 like, trying to take the other side's concerns seriously. I don't think we do that enough. Like with this imaginary speech I wrote for Biden, it's like, I think we need to engage more with the other side's beliefs, even when we think they're, you know, unfounded or even stupid. It's like we, we do too much denigration or insulting of the, the other groups. So to your point, I, I think there, there is, there is some value there. And, and, you know, for example, acknowledging that a majority of Americans, even even majority of Democrats in surveys, like supported the idea of voter voter ID, you know, like requiring ID to vote. So it's like, but you know, liberals, some liberals don't want to examine that nuance or that there might be some things we could do that many people agree with, right? That that would set people at ease a little bit more. But you know, to your point too, it's like, uh, you know, if we reversed it and like, you know, a lot of a lot of Democrats thought that Trump was an illegitimate president and they would probably balk at suggestions that they needed to do an investigation just because a large percentage of, you know, I mean, they did do it, but like we, we, we should be willing to examine like how we'd feel if the tables were reversed and be like, well, I can kind of see why they don't want to do it because we probably wouldn't want to do it in the opposite case. Right. So I think it's like, even when we're very much disagreeing and working towards our things, you know, we can kind of see like, 
hey, if the shoe was on the other foot, I, I can see how I'd be ang made angry by what the what the other side is saying. Uh, so, it, you know, to me, it's all just about working towards the things we want to work towards while like avoiding insulting and being like, you morons, like you, you traitors for not seeing things as I do, right? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, and at the very least, please, please just stop using voting machines. Just just count them by hand, man. You know, just... Oh, yeah, you're not a fan, not a fan of those? No, I just think they're rife for, for things to go wrong and for people to suspect that things have gone wrong. Like, in the UK, we count everything by hand. And do you know what? It's counted by the next day. Yeah, and and in the in the greatest and richest greatest and richest country on the planet, I would love to think you know you just hire a bunch of people, right? Yeah, but you know, <laughs> do you think it would solve it though? Because we have so much us versus them and animosity, then there'd just be accusations of like, were those group of people you I, know part of the? Do hire three groups of people. You have yeah, the fucking money. Like, that's I, would say, I mean, I, I'm not, I'm not, I won't debate you on on that specific issue. I just think like the root cause of the us versus them animosity like at some level no matter what approaches we take it doesn't it doesn't appease the us versus them animosity you know uh but you know not not to say you have a good idea you don't have a good idea there i just i'm I've often like skeptical of like even some of the systemic changes like people talk about like you know um they'll talk about like you know ranked choice voting or these other things and i, I kind of wonder you know, some of these things, maybe they'll help, maybe they wouldn't, but I kind of see some of them as like, maybe changing something is just going to be another source of animosity, you know, and like uh, more fodder for us versus them, uh, you know, but yeah, it's, it's complicated. It's, yeah. Yeah, that it definitely is. But anyway, um, Zachary, uh, I really want to thank you for your time. Uh, it's been really, really interesting chat. Uh, people go buy his book, uh, Diffusing American Anger. Uh, really enjoyed it. It's available on your website for, yeah. It's you can a, pay as little as $2. Choose, choose your price. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. But, you know, it's kind of a long-winded book. And honestly, you might enjoy checking out my podcast. Um, I, I sometimes tackle some political stuff in there. But, uh, yeah, I really appreciate it, Josh. It was a good talk, and I appreciate you uh, reaching out. Yeah. Yeah, not a problem, man. Um, thanks very much. Thank you. Hey, everyone. Thanks for making it right the way to the end of the podcast. I love that you tuned in this long. Do me a favor, hit subscribe, because 80% of you bastards are not subscribing, but you're watching my videos. See you next time.